Hey everyone, welcome back to The Screenwriting Life. I'm Meg LaFauve. And I'm Lorianne McKenna. Today we are welcoming back Javier Grigio Markswatch, whom you should remember from episode 46 of our show when he talked about operational theme for television shows, which I personally have listened to like, I don't know how many times because it's just one of my favorite episodes. So hello, Javi, and welcome Hi. to the show. Thank you for having me back. I really appreciate it. Yeah, and we are having you back for another deep dive. This time we're going to discuss your wonderful essay, What I Do on the Page, which is an in-depth look at some of the screenwriting basics that we all sometimes overlook. So we're really mm -hmm. excited to get into that and to have you back on the show. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Yeah, great essay. We will on the Facebook page mark it so you guys can all go over there and read. please read the essay. Yeah, um, I'm going to link it in the description of the episode as well. So if you're listening now and you want to you know, read along, scroll down and just click it. We're going to go over some highlights. <laughs> We're interactive now, Javi. I yeah, love it. Dazzle. <laughs> be impressed. It's like one of those books my kids read where there's a ding and then you turn the page, you know, like, yeah, yeah. very exciting. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, so, you know, you, you mentioned that there's no hard and fast rules, but what works for you. And we do talk about that a lot on the show, that no matter who we bring on, we're only offering tools in a toolbox. Mm -hmm. um, but we do find that especially emerging writers really can become obsessed with rules and, you know, what do I have to do? Mm -hmm. So I, I, We thought it would be a good place just to start there in terms of that idea. I mean, look, it's it's it, how many Twitter fights have been waged over whether to bold your slug lines, you know, and it's like, oh I think God. that that one of the I think that format anxiety is a place to go to when you have the much greater anxiety of what the hell am I going to write anxiety, um, you know, and, and I think ultimately there are a couple of basics, you know, that you have to have slug lines, although I worked on a show that didn't have them once um, because the showrunner insisted that the show had to be in the point of view of the main character. So we literally just wrote everything as that main character saw it. That was an interesting production. Loved us. Uh, I was gonna say, wow, that's <laughs> no, a hard they didn't shoot. Yeah. No, they didn't. <laughs> yeah, but um, no, but I mean, look, it's it's like it's really easy to get caught up in, on on these on these things, and it's like at the end of the day, your job is to describe what has to go in front of the camera and what has to happen in front of the camera. You know, at the most basic level, um, and the tools are there for you to pick up and use them or put them down and not, you know, it's, it's basically it there. The formatting basics are real, real simple. Slugs look this way, you know, prose looks this way and dialogue looks this way. That's all you really need to know. I think that's so important for what you said about we're writing down what needs to happen on the cam on camera. I yeah. get, I read a lot of scripts from emerging writers where there's an internal process happening. Like she realizes she didn't get the eggs at the grocery store. I'm like, how mm -hmm. are you going to show that to me on camera? So mm -hmm. always, yes, that is a great thing to have as a character note, but figure out a way to show me that without having to write it in the description, because that's yeah. an impossible thing to shoot. And it's yeah. an impossible thing to act. A script is a description of, uh, you know, the movement of emotion in real time. And, you know, by that, it really has to be what the camera sees, you know? Uh, there's so little room in a script and so little time for you to kind of like that. If, if you choose to step out of the, the the immediacy of it, it needs to be for a damn good reason. Yeah. And in the essay, you talk about a script being a loan application rather than a blueprint, which I think is yeah. also <laughs> part of this. Well, I don't call it a loan application rather than a blueprint. What The thing I really I really dislike all of the metaphors about what a script is. You know, I use some of them because you have to. But like especially the blueprint one drives me batty. Because I think people use that as an excuse to not write well, 
you know, and I think that ultimately, yes, a script has to tell people where to take the cameras, where to take the trucks, where to take the actors, where to take the wardrobe, you know. So in that way, it is it is a blueprint and it's also a work order. If you want to get even more prosaic about it, it's also a loan application in that what is on that page has to convince somebody to give you, you know, anywhere from five to a hundred million dollars to make your movie, um, which ideally you pay back with profit. Um, so yes, I mean, it's like your script has to be damn convincing, but the way that you convince somebody of that is by writing a great script. And ultimately, look, most scripts don't get made. You know, most scripts only get seen by you and whoever the, the people who control the money are, <laughs> you know, or the directors right. who attached to it or whatever. And I think you have to be able to read your own script and wake up in the morning and say, I did great work. Um, and to me, that means writing a script that is of in and of itself, a piece of art that is readable that is entertaining and that is kind of a metaphor for the movie. You know, like you basically have to give somebody through your script the experience of watching the movie without watching the movie. And it's really difficult work. So you said by saying it's a blueprint, it's an excuse not to write well. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean to you? What What's the, where's the lever that you pull that's like, oh, I don't have to do X, Y, and Z. Right. In terms of thinking about it like a loan application, mm -hmm. I'm just doing this as a blueprint, which makes me not write well. What does that if mean to you? You have big paragraphs with multiple things happening in them. You know, like like that is just the worst. Like literally, you just see this huge chunk of text, and then you've got nothing but dialogue, uninterrupted dialogue for two pages, and then another huge chunk of text. What you're inviting is for the person who's reading the loan application to not read any of the text. You're inviting them to just read the dialogue and hope they catch up to it, you know. Um, you, you know, you need to write visually and it's something that I actually learned from writing comic books. You know, when you write comic books, you're actually describing what's on the panel and you're numbering the panels and all of that. And you realize you can only describe things that are static. You know, you can only describe that you can't say Steve walks out the door because how do you show that? You know, you have to say like, you know, Steve's halfway through the door, you know, <laughs> you know, and in a weird way that actually taught me a lot about writing visually, because one of the things you see in, 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 in the essay is I rail against the use of something begins to happen. I talk about how if you say the words begins to, you're using the wrong verb. You know, you don't begin to exit a room, you walk through the doorway. And even those specifics of language would seem really persnickety. You know, it's like even those things like slow down the read, you know. And, and the thing is, when you have big chunks of para big paragraphs full of multiple actions, multiple descriptions, you're you're kind of freeing your 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 reader from actually reading and actually putting in their mind the things you need them to. In a way, you have to kind of direct the flow of the reader's eyeballs through the page using the formatting tools that we talked about, you know. And I think that a lot of people just don't think the tools are for that or that scripts should be written that way, or maybe they just don't know it, you know. I I hear what you're saying with a lot of the, you know, he begins to, he starts yeah. to, uh, like it begins to rain. What does that mm -hmm. look like? Mm -hmm. it's raining right. it rains or right. you know yeah, the passive what, voice yeah the passive yeah. voice so mm -hmm. i feel like this is a symptom of the fear of committing mm -hmm. to what you're saying definitively he right. walks through the door right is is different than he begins to walk through the door yeah. it's like this hesitancy so how yeah. do we how do we uh train our writer's voice ourself mm -hmm to commit right. in the moment that this is what our characters are doing. They're active. And how do we yeah. write in that active voice? I think that's exactly right. And that's exactly what you do. I think you need to keep, and look, I do a begins to also the other one is, you know, Steve, Steve is being whipped by Bob. Yes. Like it's Bob whips Steve, you know, it's like, right. first of all, 
words are the enemy. That was something that Michael Piller used to say, apparently. And it's like the more words that you're using to convey anything, the harder it is to convey anything, you know, especially in a movie. You know, something happens. What's happening? What is the word that says what's happening in the smallest amount of of, of, of verbiage that conveys that action immediately? And I think one of the things that you just always need to think about is, why am I writing in the present tense? You know, I'm writing in the present tense because I'm describing things that are flickering across your field of vision. You know, so so just even keeping your mind on, I'm writing in the present tense and I'm writing about what's happening in that moment. So even the begins to kind of changes that sense of time, you know? It's also a way to get you to think about the in later out early, right? Mm -hmm. Because then you're not doing, he walk, he's beginning to walk across the room. He walks <laughs> through the room. He leaves the room. It's what is the action and right. how can I capture that? Yeah. Not just the, the description, but the whole scene, right? Yeah. So if you're really focusing on the action in front of the camera, that's a way to really focus yeah. your, your in and out of a scene. Yeah. The other thing, look, the other thing that I do to to try to keep, you know, it's like I, I and I think I talk about this in, in the essay. And again, these are just tools. But I try to sort of break down the information of a scene into what I call bits. And in, in the most technical term, a bit is positive or negative, yes or no, right? It's, that it's zero one piece of information. But to me, a bit is what is the low, what is the smallest amount of visual information that you're seeing? You know, and I try to keep every paragraph to one bit of information you know steve walks into the car you know in terms of the action that you're going to see on on screen that's enough you know like like that line actually helps you kind of keep the you know this they say it's a minute a page but that's not true you know obviously people say oh good rule of thumb is every page takes a minute well you need to kind of be cognizant of that um and also of how much time what you're describing in your prose takes so i think when you start breaking it down into here's the action of this moment here's the action of the next moment instead of saying steve walks into the car he puts the key into the ignition and then picks up his cell phone and calls mom you know <laughs> like that's a lot to put in a paragraph and visually that's telling you a lot of shit that's going on that probably happens while the scene is going on so you, you just kind of need to be able to break out like ultimately script writing is about controlling a flow of information and it's about controlling a flow of visual information you know, and control. So, so you need to control the flow of visual information on the page the way that the director might control it by pulling your attention to certain things on the frame, you know? Yeah, that's how I think about it. Well, first of all, I always go through my draft and take out, I, I accidentally will sometimes write in the passive voice. I just, and I just, <laughs> right. sometimes I have to do a pass, like get it all out. But I also catch myself writing that stuff, got in the car, picked up the phone, called his mom. It's like, wait, 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 they're not going to shoot all that. Yeah. Like, because once you've been on a set and you've seen how it, how they're not shooting all that, they are yeah. literally shooting what is important to the story, character, emotions, something. Why do I need to know that? Now, you might really need to know that because yeah. he thought he lost his phone and or whatever. Like, mm. but boy, we better need to know why am I going to take up shoot time doing right. that? And I do think those are early drafts because our brains are just trying to figure mm. out what the fuck we're writing about. So totally. we're putting words down on a page. So for me, early drafts, break all these rules. Who cares? Oh, yeah. But no, you're not leaving it there. You've mm. got to get to that economy. And part of that economy is something that you speak about, the artistic poetry, because mm. we're talking about kind of get, get more simple. And yet that doesn't mean not emotional. It doesn't mean not poetic. It mm. does not mean not artistic. If anything, it's it's an even higher level of writing to be able to do that uh, quicker. And I'd love you to talk about that a little bit. Yeah, look, I think that, I mean, look, I got to tell you, one of the things that has taught me economy and writing is Twitter, mm -hmm. you know, and I know that everybody talks about how evil and what a hellscape Twitter is, but, and it is perhaps, I don't know. But one of the things I love about Twitter is that I have to keep 
figuring out how to tell really complicated ideas in a very, very small, uh, 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 you know, in a very small box. Um, and it's actually been great for my sort of concision in writing, you know, um, and almost, you know, it, you know, for me, it's like almost think of think of your action lines as tweets, you know, think of them about about how, you know, like, like, what is the shortest way of saying this? What is the most, uh, you know, uh, uh, impactful way of saying this? And that's anytime I compose a tweet and actually put a great deal of thought into it, you know, it's all about, okay, I have this pretty complicated idea. You know, uh, how can a God who is simultaneously of the universe, but also the universe, uh, you know, create a contradiction that it cannot resolve? Well, uh, yeah, that's a pretty, but I got to figure out how to say it in a tweet, you know? So, so things like that, like, I mean, I actually find it to be a really useful exercise, but ultimately, look, I think you need, I think you need to think of the script and what's on the page as, again, it's a metaphor for the film and you want for people to see on the page what they should be seeing as the scene unfolds, you know? So for me, it's about what is the most important piece of information that I have to put in this so that the scene can start? What is the most important, what is the next most important scene, piece of information? And when does that have to go? You know, what is the least I can do to make sure that you know where we are at and what's going on and do the least amount of work possible? And doing the least amount of work possible is a shit ton of work. <laughs> yes, because it is like poetry where you have found the absolute perfect word, not yeah. five sentences, but word. And to that end, my son, who's in film school, mm -hmm. has a book. And I was like, I'm getting that book. It's mm -hmm. a book called Actions, the Actor's Thesaurus. And nice. it's literally all based on active mm -hmm. words. Yeah. So to keep your character active, mm -hmm. but really drilling down into what are you saying for the character right yeah. now? Just yeah. is he driving? Is he compelling? Is he forcing? Is he goading? Is he impelling just to mm -hmm. give a sense of that character in that moment? Right. If he's totally. uh, if he's forcing somebody versus manipulating versus goading, it, it starts to shift the character in, in a single word. Mm -hmm. um, and again, this is stuff you can do as you move through your drafts. But I took a class at USC from an actor named Nina Foch, who was like just she taught the class at USC for for acting. And uh, and one of the things that he talked about is exactly that is like, what is the action verb? And she would say it in terms of acting. You look at the line and you try to figure out what am I doing? And, you know, she had a, a list of words just like that. It's like taking his temperature, driving at home, all of that stuff. Right. I actually just do that now in my parentheticals. Yes. Yeah. I no longer describe an emotional state in parenthetical like angrily. No, I'm like drilling in, leaning in, mm. you know, uh, uh, putting, you know, sh shanking him, whatever. Whatever verb I can put in a parenthetical that describes an emotion for the words that are going in terms of action, it's so much better than saying blanching, angrily, you know, frustrated. You know, it's like the more specific you can be about the verb that the line is is doing, the better your parentheticals are. And I, I so anyway, but it also to... starts to help on a much deeper understanding of writing, which is want. Yes, which is action. Mm -hmm. That characters aren't standing there receiving things, and that actors are going to take your script and they're mm -hmm. going to look for these words. They're yeah. going to look for what do they want? What's their action? What are they doing in this scene? And by taking a vert, a we're going to do a lot of drafts. So mm -hmm. take one draft and say this draft, I'm just going to look at the poetry, the specificity of my word choice. Am I mm -hmm. really getting it across yep. uh, in this kind of economic and yet poetic way? Okay. I have a, I have an exercise for Meg and Javi. Okay. Uh, so we have Steve getting in his car, picking up the phone, calling his mother. We talked about how all what not to do. How what is a way we mm -hmm. could write 
spot on the moment, right? That moment with these mm. words that you're talking about that would capture that Steve mm. in his car and what he wants. He's talking to his mom. Like, mm. is there an example that's beautiful? A spur of the moment. I just sprung this on you. But like, what mm. is a way to do that as an example? I would actually start with, you know, Steve enters his car, uh, not mm -hmm. gets into, uh, mm -hmm. you know, and then I would actually start Steve's next line with a parenthetical that would be picking up his phone. So that we're actually dividing both actions, one from the other. We're making one kind of the, the establishing action of the scene. The parenthetical becomes the thing he's doing. Your mind's assuming he's already in the car. by Because by the time he's picking up his phone, he's already seated. So you know that. I let your mind fill that in much as your mind fills in the dark space between the frames. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I would have him, uh, I mean... What else, I mean, what else? It's is about what's emotionally going on with him, yeah. right? Like to me, right. you can say he slams into his car, right? Like yeah. meaning he is, he's, uh, he's. There's a thrust into his car. He's slamming into his car, yeah. and you could say, I would say, if it's important for him to pick up a phone, it's because he picks up his phone but pauses and shudders. Mm -hmm. But that means something's going on with him, yeah. and we know what's going on because we were so deeply in his emotional point of view of who he's going to call right now. Right. That he's just come out of something very upsetting. Mm -hmm. He's slamming into his car, shudders as he picks up his phone closes his eyes, starts to dial. And yeah. we're like, oh my God, he's so nervous about this phone call and he's so upset. Like, it's all about what state do you want us in emotionally because we are Steve. You're right. <laughs> right. Because if Steve pours himself into his car, right? He, he, he uh, and, and then he picks up his phone and dials gloomily. That's a very different kind of set of adjectives from he slams into his car, shakes his head and, you know, so, I mean, I think, right. I think it's, 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 you know, but even, but even the gets into the car, I think what Meg was saying is really, it's like, there are 500 ways of saying gets into your car and slams is very different from pour him, pours himself into, you know, pours himself. You, maybe you're assuming depression. You're assuming somebody who's not got a lot of physical energy. Who's like, whatever, you know, where slamming is, you know, so that those word choices are crucial and they, they help you uh, have less, they, they help you have fewer words. At some point they're going to come in and go, do we need him to get in his car? Because that's a whole different location. We got to rent a car. We got to do this. Is that essential? And you're right. like, on the day, you're like, no, it's right. not. We can just jump to this. But right. sometimes you don't even know that till you're on set, honestly. But right. that's the, the the other giant economy that starts to happen is really what's essential. Right. Um, I I, I want to get to the opening scene of your pilot, or opening act. Pilot, yeah. How do you grab them? You know, what what is that essential? What is the essential thing? And how are we grabbing them? Because I think this is so, so, so important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I spent a lot of time on that first page. Obviously, I mean, it, because it's 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 a Xena pilot, so you're t so you already have the expectation of people who know the show and all of that. Um, look, I, I I spent a fair bit of time in the essay talking about how, um, you know, I used the slug the first slug line in the pilot is Thracian countryside, and what a shitty slug line that is, because you know, I love that. Yeah, where the hell is Thracia? You know. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't tell you anything about anything, you know? <laughs> so look, I think in apropos of, of saying like, get the audience in there, tell them exactly what they need to know. Right. And that slug line is sort of make a big deal out of it. Okay. So like if you read Thracian countryside, well, you know, kind of know what a countryside looks like, sort of, you know I mean? I guess you think rolling green hills or something, but then you go to Wikipedia to find out that Thracian is actually the adjective for something that's from Thrace. And then you got to find out where Thrace is. It's horrible rewriting that script, I would probably make that, you know, a, a, a heavily wooded uh, ravine, you know, near, near a palace is a much better slug line. Cause now, you know, exactly. And that's literally, first of all, the camera art and art, art and locations department will love you. Cause you're actually telling them what you need. Right. 
um, in a very specific way. You tell camera, art department, and 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 uh, locations. I want you know Thracian countryside. Then they're looking at Thrace, Thrace and Wikipedia and figuring. And it may mean something very different to them. You know. Um, so already, like there, I've already given you something far more specific. You know what you're looking at, and now I don't have to describe that in the paragraph below. So I'm so you know to use your slug lines with the most like like just the, in the most mercenary way to make sure that you get the, the most basic information out of there, so that you're not putting it in another line. You know, because if I wrote exterior Thracian countryside, you know, and then I wrote you know Hercules sits on a on 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 hits on the edge of, of a wooded ravine near a palace, I'm like I've already slowed you down. <laughs> you know. So that's a big part of it, you know, and look, I think with 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 that scene, it's very much about introducing two different characters that the audience already knows. It's about introducing Hercules and introducing Xena, right? So, you know, it's important for me that Hercules enter the scene, you know? So, and he's the first character. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, you find out about Hercules is he wore the pelt of the Nemean lion, right? So like, I want to really make sure that you see that lion head coming through the shadow, you know, and then sort of coming into light. So, you know, just even like focusing on those things, um, you know, rather than saying, you know, this guy, uh, Hercules walks in, you know, it's like, no, it's like, you know, the character, you know, somebody walks in from the shadow. The first you notice is the head of the Nemean lion, that sort of thing. Again, it's, it's, it's just about making sure that you don't take for granted that the audience knows anything and that you're giving them the least amount of information for the most amount of visual, uh, uh, visual spark in their head, you know? Um, and then, you know, with Xena, Xena, so Hercules has a whole scene in the scene. And when Xena comes in, you actually hear her voice from the background. So she's kind of already been there. So she, so Hercules is an, so one of the things in, in teasers is like, who's entering into the scene and who are you revealing in the scene? You know, so you need to start thinking about that. Like when you're introducing characters, it's like, is this character somebody who barrels into the scene or is this character somebody who later you realize they've been hearing everything and only now do they speak because they have an opinion. These are all really important things they're telling you a great deal about the character. You know, having Hercules walk into the scene tells you he's the boss, right? Having Xena sitting on the other side of the scene, listening to it, and then not speaking out until much later, and then you realize she's there, tells you, okay, now you know a lot about her relationship. So even those things help you kind of grab the audience. You know, look, this scene ends with Xena riding like five mares out of a burning stable. So, you know... I think you're going to be pretty hooked once you see something like that. But even in that first page before the action goes on, I want you getting an idea that this is a visually dynamic moment, even though it's just a bunch of soldiers plotting, you know, a home invasion, basically. But you're also establishing character with their entrance so that mm -hmm. I know these two character dynamics, this relationship of a guy who walks in boldly wearing mm -hmm. a lion's head from dark to light. Those are all mm -hmm. really specific things about him. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Metaphorically, physically, how he behaves, his assumptions, his mm -hmm. expectations. And hers are completely the opposite. She's right. in the back. Her expectations is she's going to hide. She'll manipulate. She'll... And so it tells me it starts to tell me what fun this this show is going to be, because exactly. I'm already getting the sparks of, ooh, you're telling me immediately. Look mm -hmm. how fun this show is going to be with these two people with their completely different approaches mm -hmm. are going to come together somehow in this pilot. So it's to me, these scenes are often the last ones to get written, meaning I write them badly a lot. But to, because I don't know until I write all the pilot, what is the best way this entrance, this kind of you're setting up the whole show, really, I would think. Yeah, absolutely. No, you're absolutely right. And and look, you, the the way that I write, I have sort of my method. I'm trying to figure it out to explain to somebody. But it's like I usually like re, like I compose in the afternoon, but I rewrite in the morning. Because I find that, you know, in the morning, I'm kind of my brain's a little bit more rigid and a little bit more like get it done. 
Um, so always the first scene is always the one that gets picked over the most, mm-hmm. you know, and it's not until I'm about, you know, if I'm writing an episode, it's not until I'm about a week into it that I stop looking at the teaser altogether that I start on page 10 or 15 or whatever, you know. But I think it's important that those be the pages that are most picked over because they're the ones who are going to decide whether the person is going to read your script or not, you know, and and look, it's like the every everybody involved in a show is going to start making choices, you know, and, and I think what you want is for them not to make the choices for you, you know. And I don't direct on the page. I don't tell people, you know, where to put the camera or whatever. But even the language you use tells you kind of like what mood you want, what feeling you want. I mean, there's a way of telling a director how you want a character introduced without telling them where to put the camera, you know, yep. and what effect you want. And it's like you need to be thinking about all of those things. What's the effect that I want this to have on the audience as they see it, you know? And I mean, look, that goes across the board for for, for the entire script, but for the whatever the first 10 pages are they better be very tight, you know? So it's interesting listening to you talk about all this. And, you know, I read the essay and we've talked to you before. And uh, right now, I just want to connect with our audience that what you might be experiencing is brain saturation. You just heard a lot of really amazing things. And so I'm just, I'm here with you, audience. Like if you're like, wait, 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 I don't know if I can handle anymore because it's all so good. I got to like process all this. Stick And not in a bad way. No, this is brilliant and I love it, but I'm already churning on like, Mm. What did I do in that script? How could I have done this better? And making sure that I keep up with you um, just in my own process. So I'm just reaching out to our audience who might also have having their minds blown right now in a great way. Like, you know, we've all heard you can this listen stuff again. Listen, can listen again. But, but hearing this stuff again, phrased in a different way by a different voice is always so powerful mm-hmm. and compelling. And like, I, I don't know, I just, I'm finding it really um inspiring and sobering at the same time. So thank you. And a I'm reminder. So flattered that by this, this. Thank you so much. <laughs> this is a job, but it's also a passion and an art, but it's a craft. And these mm-hmm. are things that you have developed over years and years. Yeah. yeah. And so this is not something you're going to be able to be like, got it. Check, check, check. Hobbies process. Here I am. Right. Like this is. I don't, yeah. A, I don't process. think that I yeah. started writing in what I would call my voice until probably around 1998, which was when I wrote the first draft of the pilot for this TV show, The Middleman, that I created. And and that's, you know, that's that's not, you know, that's if you think about my career as a writer, which started in high school, I started writing these little plays. I mean, you're talking about over a decade of just, you know, whatever, until I figured out how I wanted to write, but also like why things should be on the page, you know? And I think that one of the, the, the really important things for me was trying to figure out just like, why is this on the page? Why am I putting this down? You know, what is not just the effect? What am I trying to get the audience to feel and and all of that? And I feel like it takes a really long time. Um, You you guys ever hear of the runner's high, you know, like people who run Mm -hmm. tell you about the runner's high. And I think it's bullshit. I've never, I think it's just the thing they they tell you. Yeah, (laughs) I think it's something they tell you so that you'll eventually have a knee replacement. I think it was actually a a rumor planted by surgeons, you know. I had it once right before I hurt myself because I was pushing myself too far (laughs) in a run. And then I pulled a my less leg muscle that mm-hmm. I wasn't able to run for a very long time. So like that's what the runner's high got me. Mm-hmm. It broke me. Is it something you want you want to get again? <laughs> no. It's because I pushed myself way too yeah. far. Are I you wasn't saying connected. there's a are you saying there's a writer's high? Yeah. Um, I am. And and it's not I don't think you experience it. It's not like you're there on the keyboard going, oh, the ideas are just flowing out of me. Oh my God. I think that the version of the writer's high is that, and I'm starting to experience it. Like I mean, I've only started to experience it in the last two years maybe, is that I forget the actual act of writing the script after I've done it. 
you know, and it's such a painful thing to like, you know, like, like script writing is so it's, it's, I went to my wife and I said, I now understand why you forgot how horrible pregnancy was and why you wanted another kid. Uh What I'm experiencing now is like, you write, it's like now when I write, like, I mean, I'm in it completely, but then like when I'm done, I'm kind of like, I don't remember writing that scene. Oh, okay. You know, whatever. And I think, and look, I think that, that you write as much as you can. So you get better at it. And so that you can start forgetting how to write, you know? The yes, moment you absolutely. stop thinking about how to write is the moment that you're like kind of in that zone where you're just, you know, the ideas are flowing through you. And it's just all about internalizing all of these, whatever the lessons are that work for you. And yeah, it's been, it's been a 30 year process for me. It's not, you know, none of this stuff is easy or uh, s- smooth or seamless or anything like that. It is extraordinarily difficult to do this well. And I'm not saying that I do. I'm saying that maybe because I don't, it's why I forgot. It's why I now forget when I'm reading the scripts. I don't know. <laughs> No, it's become intuitive. <laughs> Jeff, did you have a question? Well, I was just going to say, like, one of the things that I think is really important to acknowledge is I think what, what we're talking about is economy and efficiency in our writing. But a lot of emerging writers hear that and they think sterile. Like, they think that there's no personality or art that's allowed in our writing. So I just, mm-hmm. just to acknowledge that, like, economy of language and active voice and efficiency mm-hmm. does not mean a lack of personality. And I think early writers, you hear you hear efficiency and economy and it you you feel prevented or like you're not allowed access to something joyful and artistic and poetic. I might be being redundant to what we've already talked no, about. No, no, you're not. And and you know what? The other thing they assume is that you, you know, like look, I break the fourth wall in my scripts constantly. You know, like I wrote the script um called Cat Lady, which was John Wick with a cat lady, sort of a parody of it's kind of a parody of the United States and how we view other countries because all the villains were about as grotesquely stereotypical as I could make them, but in a funny way. And I wanted it to sort of be about like like how Amer- how how American movies sort of process our reality, but by telling the story of John Wick as a cat lady, right? And it's, it's kind of like my Shane Black script that it's the one where I have the most direct address, the one where I have the most attitude, which is the one where I have the most, there's the most me in that script. Mm. But it's not to the detriment of anything I've spoken about. If I choose to address you, as my reader in a script, it's not a it's not a tool you shouldn't use. It's just a tool that you need to know how to use efficiently and economically as well. Even though when you're reading direct address from the writer, it may seem a little shaggy, you know, but it's like nothing, nothing that goes in a script should be unplanned or uncalculated, you know? And look, in the essay also, I, I point out that like Shane Black, you know, and we're all to some degree, most male writers of my generation, are and 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 perhaps a lot of female ones, but I find it mostly in male writers because his writing is so so masculine and so frankly a little bit on the you know uh, uh, hyper masculine side, um, you know. But I mean, the guy is a menace. His formatting, his script. I mean, it's all over the place. You know, it's like it's like if by but if if what I were saying, if the things I'm saying are laws, then Shane Black would be like like the guy who's broken all of them. But his scripts are actually quite delightful to read, and you get the movie from reading his. That's why his scripts. You know, that's why he was the original million dollar writer is because he's writing in a way that you can see the movie, but he's talking to you. His formatting is weird. I mean, it's all that. Um, And it's and it's just another way of communicating. You can look at Shane Black's script. He probably does nothing that I say to do, but they're great. The other script I point out in my in in, in the essays, Lawrence Kasdan's script for Raiders Lost Ark, which as far as I'm concerned, is the perfect movie. Um, you know, but the script is big hunks of, of paragraphs of text and then dialogue. I mean, it's like he breaks everything that I think is good. I think in part of it, because he was working with the director uh, specifically, it was probably already storyboarding action scenes and stuff like that. So he didn't have the same burden to describe things the way that that I that you have to when mm-hmm. you're writing a spec. 
or when you're writing a script to be read, but at the same time, his writing is tremendously effective. Um, so there's, there's five, you know, we're in the cat skinning business here, you know, and if you, and if you write your script in the voice of Thomas Pynchon and that's what gets you sold, then you did it, you know? Uh, yeah. but it's not, it's not necessarily how I would write it or any, any of that stuff, you know? Let's go back though to your way. Cause mm -hmm. I am fascinated by your way. Um, let's talk a little bit about dialogue. Yes. Um, you say your job isn't to mirror the way people talk in uh, reality, quote unquote. Yeah. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about that? I find it hilarious. You know, like I wrote uh, uh, when when the middleman came out, especially, you know, people would say to me, well, the characters all kind of like when we, even when we were producing the script, people say the characters all kind of sound the same. And I'm like, yeah, that's on purpose. Like this, these characters live in a universe where they all speak like neurotic, overeducated Puerto Ricans. They all speak very quickly. They use a lot of, a lot of ex very expressive, very whatever language. And, you know, uh, frankly, Part of part of this, the way that character spoke in that show was also kind of my impression of English based on somebody who spent a lot of his life translating from Spanish to English and all of that, you know, and somebody who has a really a real love of wordplay and word games. Um, I said, but even if you look at how the dialogue reads, what you'll notice is every character wants something. Every character's want is clear. Every character's dramatic intent is clear. I'm not just writing this way because I don't know the difference between my characters and all that. Your job is to take this dialogue that's all very rhythmic and in a very specific cadence, figure out what your character is trying to get through it, and then interpret it in a way that expresses that the way that the dialogue has it. As opposed to, because if an actor would come to me and say, well, people don't talk that way, I'm like, people don't talk in any way. You know, most people talk in a way that's extraordinarily boring. It's formless. Um, and, you know, I'm sorry? So true. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't talk like that. I don't ramble at all. I mean, how dare you? I'm so confused. Thank you for the note, but like, I have no idea anyway. <laughs> I think all dialogue is, and it's the thing like, like there is so much put on, oh, the dialogue is so naturalistic. No, it's not. It's not naturalistic. People don't talk that way because people's interactions don't have buttons. You know, people's interactions don't begin and end neatly. You know, it's like when you're writing a scene, you're not, you know, so, so once you embrace the idea that all dialogue is artifice, you know, you realize that what you're really doing is, you know, creating dialogue that like, it's not about do people talk like this is have I created a world where I can convince my audience that people talk this way in this world, you know, so smart. And again, when you, so when you read good. cat lady, if you were to pick it up, because I don't know, you, you, you were having trouble sleeping or something. Um, you know, that's another script where I made very specific choices about the characters, not speaking in a naturalistic way at all. Absolutely not. But there's a reason for it, you know, and it's and if when and in the world of Cat Lady, I I mean, I I really like that script. I'm very proud of it. It'll never get made. Um, but it's one of those things where, like, I look at that script and I think I've created a world where people talk this way, and I feel like I like I that that's a task I accomplished in the script, you know. So. I love that. Also, you know, dialogue comes from character. Right, mm -hmm. character in that world, mm -hmm. right? Even your characters who all sound the same. They, you said, they all have different wants, different mm -hmm. needs, different drives. Um, so it's not like they all sound the same. They just, mm -hmm. it's part of your rhythm, right? Is that what yes. you're saying? Part yeah. of the rhythm of the script as a mm -hmm. whole. Yeah. Um, I want to get into some technical stuff you talk about, but before mm -hmm. that, um, right after we had you on the show the first time I was hired to be a showrunner for tab time and I texted you and mm -hmm. I was like, help, what do <laughs> I do? <laughs> because you would talk so much about show running mm -hmm. and everything. And you gave me a piece of advice that sustained me through the show and I think helped oh me and it be successful, which was pick an image mm -hmm. that represents what you want for the show. And for tab time, I picked a big bowl of fresh fruit because 
tab is about healthy eating and mm. health. You look at a big bowl of fruit, you know exactly what it is. Bright colors. It's for preschool. Mm-hmm. Each piece of fruit, you know what it is. You know how it tastes. It's healthy, but it's sweet. Like, and it's for me that just meant the show. So the mm-hmm. whole set was de- designed around that. Her outfit, the vibe of the show it was always mm-hmm. a check back for all the leads. Is this a big bowl of fruit? Mm-hmm. And it awesome. is something I have approached on all of my I don't projects. Remember giving you that advice? I think that's pretty great. I'm like, I'm gonna... <laughs> <laughs> you know what? But here's the thing. Like, I think with something like, for example, for the middleman. You know, like like the 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 word on that show was chubby, you know, and I just wanted that show to be a chubby show, and I wanted everything in the show to be chubby, and then like people would say like, well, what does that mean? And I'd be like, well, I just don't want things to have, I want all everything to feel tactile, like you'd reach into the screen and get to it. I want I don't want flat screens. I want cathode ray tubes. They're big. They occupy space, and I want all of the anything that's a box to have rounded corners. You know, I want, and you know, like we even got to the point where like. Um, the sound designers were like, well, what's a chubby sound? And I was like, well, I'll tell you, you know, it was a sci-fi show. So, you know, most, most sounds in sci-fi shows go, you know, like that servo powering up sound, you know? Um, And I said, well, I want you to reverse that, you know, because a chubby sound goes, (laughs) you know, so, and, (laughs) and I just clicked with them and then suddenly, and and like my, my favorite story about the show is that we were having a production meeting and the prop guy came in with a, a guy who was beginning to, to he was going to take over on the set so the so the prop guy could like move on to fabrication. So he was training the new guy and there was something in the script about a hammer. Right. And the new prop guy goes, oh, I have a hammer right here. Is this one OK? You know, and the other prop guy goes, no, dude, that's that's not a chubby hammer here. Give me that. <laughs> and then he pulled out a mallet and he's like, is this a chubby hammer? I'm like, yeah, that's a chubby you know, so- <laughs> So it's like so, and yeah. even with wardrobe, like I mean, I didn't mean make the make the people look fat, but it meant that I wanted everything to have that kind of feeling, like everything. Volume. A little, I'm sorry. Yeah, exactly. Volume. Yeah, and it's and I think that's probably where the advice I gave you came from. It's just this idea that if you have a strong central, like the, the other the other advice I gave when writing a script and doing anything like that is, what are your three hills to die on? What are the three things you will never compromise on? And once you know that, you realize everything else is a negotiation with yourself, with whoever. You know, uh, once you know what the three fundamentals are on anything you're writing or doing, you realize the fluidity of everything else will make it so much richer, you know? And sometimes those three become one. So prioritize mm-hmm. those hills. Yes. Because <laughs> yes. <laughs> once you get to set, it's like, oh, yeah. okay, never mind. Yeah. You really can well, only die once anyway. So <laughs> Right. And I, uh, I find in early drafts in terms of writing, I might think there's a hill to die on, but as I go, I realize, oh, there's a hill under that hill. And I'm really not facing, Mm -hmm. my brain was telling me die on this hill because it's Mm -hmm. actually trying to get me to something deeper. Mm -hmm. Um, So that can also be fluid as you go. Um, Mm -hmm. And you can start with one image and it gets more complex or it shifts because you're you're drafting up, you're 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 pulling it up. A hill that I was dying on repeatedly at Pixar for Inside Out was um when mom sits down on the the sits down with Riley, Riley's in her sleeping bag, and she says to Riley, basically, she says, Thanks so much for being our happy girl. She says, you know, it's been so hard with dad, the job and the move, and you've been happy. Thank you so much for being our happy girl. And that was on the chopping block so many times because they were like, it's not likable. It's not likable. No one's going to like. And I would be like, first of all, every parent has said it. Every parent will suddenly feel not so alone. Second, it is the motor of the whole movie. It's Joy's call to action. It's why we don't hate Joy. It's why Joy is doing everything in the movie because she got her marching orders from mom. Stay happy. If you cut it out, the movie's going to fall down. 
Like it was my hill to die on for so many reasons, for the character, for the relationships, for the plot. And sometimes other people couldn't see it, but I could see it. So it was the hill that I died on many times. Um, for me, I, it wasn't a big struggle, but it was something really important to me on tab time that each episode have a clear theme because there were segments across and I wanted to start it in a certain way. So I wanted to reorder the the segments in a way that told a story throughout them. So it was a question asked, asked, and then answered in several different ways to get to the end and that there be different visual signifiers in each of those scenes. So like at the beginning, it's the, the garden with the gardening gloves and then the imagination shoes. And then by the end, the story glasses, so that each of those things felt tactile and real, um, just that there was visual storytelling and emotional storytelling through it. And I was totally supported by the production and Tab and everybody on this, but I definitely had to think about how I wanted to organize it thematically because kind of like a procedural, right? Every episode has its like chunk, 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 ask question, how we get in and out, but making sure that I had that really strong thematic so the title of the episode was like, this is what it is. This is about friendship. And that it was about friendship in a very specific way. Because it's easy to sort of go off kilter when you have kids and guest stars and animation. So it wasn't so much a hill I died on. I didn't die, but like I fought for and was always, was always my sort of, is this thematic? Does this answer the question posed in the last um, segment? And so it was just the way I sort of held the show together in my head. So that was really important to me. Uh, so I was, I was working at NBC as an executive the year that ER was developed. And uh, and one of the things that, and it was based, it was based on a, actually a feature that Michael Crichton had written that then John Wells, you know, sort of worked into that pilot. But I remember hearing Michael Crichton talk about the show. And one of the things he said that, you know, you see it in that show, you see that it is the, the core of that show is that he said, doctors are heroes. Like that was the hill to die on as doctors are heroes, no matter what we have to portray that. And I think one of the big pieces of the show's success was that is that, you know, even though George Clooney shows up drunk at the ER at the, by the end of that pilot, he is just amazing and you love him and you love all the doctors because that's what they're there to do. And you realize they do it well and all of that. So I really, I think that, you know, sometimes your hill to die on is just a huge thematic thing. You know, I think for, you know, I, I think I, you know, talk a lot about the middleman because it's such a, expression of me in a very direct way you know for me one of the hills i had done a pilot and uh the the it was during pilot season so like all the actors were working really hard on memorizing a lot of scenes multiple auditions a day and all that and it had dialogue very similar to the middleman and the actors were just having a really hard time auditioning and i had a, a really embarrassing studio audition where like the actor you know the actor i brought in for the lead melted down because he couldn't say the dialogue you know and I remember the president of the studio yelling at me, listen to what your actors are telling you. They can't say the dialogue. And I remember thinking, no, what my actors are telling me is that it's pilot season. They don't have time to memorize the dialogue, which means they don't have time to make choices about the dialogue. And on that pilot, I went ahead and did some simplification and whatever, because like, you know, but I said on the middleman, like, this is how these characters talk. Uh, and and that was a hill for me to die on. I, I was not, whenever somebody wanted things to be more colloquial or whatever, my answer was no. You know, whenever somebody said, but somebody actually say this entire string of like, yes, you know, and it's like, and ultimately what we wound up doing was we hired a memorization coach. Um, so all of the actors had a coach to run lines with, because my theory was, because we had some issues with some of the acting on the show and the studio came to me and said, we're having issues with the acting. 
And I remember talking to Matt Kieslar, who played the middleman, and he said, you know, we should get a, we sh what we should have is a line coach, somebody who, because then if we, the dialogue is hard to memorize, but if we have it memorized and we can make choices, you know, and that's what Ultimate Dylan worked out very well. But it's one of those things where, you know, like for me, for me, that was the big swing. It's can I write a show where people, everybody talks this way and you still love them as characters. And, you know, I, I you can watch the show and tell me if we succeeded or not, but enough people seem to like the show that I think we did okay. Absolutely. Something else that people struggle with in terms of dialogue, I know that I struggle with it, is exposition. Mm -hmm. um, what's your view? How do we do it? How do we avoid it? <laughs> there's a lot. I think I say this in the in the, in the essay. There's a line, and I actually found the line. There's a line in the pilot for Heroes, you know, where uh, there's a character named Mohinder, and he's having a conversation with his friend, and his friend says, "As you know, Mohinder, your father was the greatest researcher in genetics," you know. <laughs> Yes, I know that I'm his son, you know, <laughs> like that's bad exposition, obviously. I mean, look, I, I, um, exposition is like such a bet. I mean, like I make fun of that line, but I can also imagine that, you know, how do you get that information out in, in the course of that line, you know, but, it, but it's like, look, I, I think that you have to stop thinking of exposition as a thing you have to get through. And you have to start thinking of exposition as how is this part of the, how is getting this information a part of the drama of the scene, you know? So that you're not thinking about how do I do an info dump? I'm thinking about how can I make this info dump part of the drama? You know, how can I make somebody dumping this information part of it? And it's extraordinarily difficult. Um, on my favorite, I, there was, there was a, a, none of these actually fit with what I'm, with the lesson I'm trying to tell you, but my, I, I have had two expo dumps in my career that I think are the things I've been proudest of ever. One of them was on the dark crystal, which is that we had, we had to figure out how, like, I don't know if you've seen the Dark Crystal. The mythology of the Dark Crystal makes no goddamn sense. I mean, like Jim <laughs> it's Henson. It's a little dark and, too. And, it's a little yeah, dark. Yeah, Let's just say that. A bit dark. Yes. <laughs> you can tell they were, you know, enjoying a little bit of the uh, non-legal marijuana when they came up with that stuff. You know, maybe I don't know. But uh, but no, I mean, it's very loosey goosey. It's very fabulistic. It's very dream logic. Like it's not mythology that you can. So we're trying to figure out how to explain that. And we we had had the characters go on this quest to get to this place where like these two characters were going to explain it to them. We finally get there. And, and like, I basically came up with the idea of let's do this exposition dump as a puppet show. Cause we have, a, <laughs> we're doing a puppet show. So we have puppets doing the puppets and then we'll be at least be entertaining that how they're showing it, you know? Um, and that actually smoothed over a lot of the kind of weird bumps in the narrative. Cause you know, in, in, in trying to get the exposition on cogently, the other, the other time I did an expo dump was I wrote a script about people who've been abducted by aliens and the aliens basically say, we chose, we need. We have information. We have to impart on you. We chose a way we thought you might find pleasing and familiar. Turn toward the screen, please. And then suddenly, like the screen turns green, and what you realize is the aliens have made a trailer, like you see in the movie theater. You know, so like the green screen is actually like the 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 approved for audience, and then and then basically the entire exposition is explained to them as a as a in a world where you know. Um, <laughs> That's like but, in Jurassic Park too, right? They have the little animation right? thing where they're in yes. the, what's like a ride. They're going through the lab yes. and everything. Yeah. Yes. So, I mean, there's ways of doing, exp if you're doing something that's a little more fanciful, you can get exposition out any number of ways that are, you know. Um, but look, I think uh, I think that uh, even, even uh, um, you know, I, look, I think usually the drama stops for the exposition. It's one of the hardest things to do well. Um, and, and I think it literally just comes down to, can I put this down in a way that it's either the character asking a question or that it reflects what the character wants. But the thing you don't want is people telling each other things they already know. 
And that's where it gets real sticky. And my God, I feel for all of us. That's a good test. <laughs> what, why am I saying this as a person, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Why am I saying this to somebody who uh, who might already know it? The, the the worst part in exposition is when people are explaining shit to each other they already know, and you have to like, you know. So I mean, look, I think that that probably when I think about exposition and world building, and people ask me about those things, the the movie I tell them to watch is Coco, because uh, that movie is literally explaining to you a foreign culture, rituals in a foreign culture how they should work, how they go wrong, and how to fix them when they go wrong. And it happened, I mean, I couldn't even point to you and say, this is how they do the exposition because I can't, I have a hard time spotting it, you know? Like even the scene where Miguel is told how he can reverse the curse that's put on him is told in the context of the one person who can give it to him won't, you know? So it's about him trying to get, you know, his his great-grandmother to take the leaf and all. I mean, so there's a real, I mean, I, 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 I could sit down and try to figure it out with you how exactly the exposition is done in that movie, but I rather just enjoy it. It took five years. Um, Let me just say that. <laughs> hard one. And I think that that you know the the most important question though to ask is why are these people telling telling this to each other at this moment? Right. And can it be part of the wants and needs of the scene? And that's pretty much it. Wants and know? needs of the scene. Yeah. Wants and needs mm -hmm. of the scene. I'm going to keep saying it. Yeah, and of the characters in the yeah. scene, you know, yeah. It connects so, to, to what you said just about don't stop the fun train, I think is such a great thesis statement for mm -hmm. when we're writing. I've actually put it above my desk, Javi. And if our exposition starts to feel like a chore, we've hopped off the fun train. And I think our job as yeah. a writer is to like pivot and figure out like, well, like I'm demanded to make this engaging and interesting for my audience. Like yeah. what else? What else can I do? Mm -hmm. It's just such a good just umbrella idea as we're at the page. Mm -hmm. And by the way, that is that the John Rogers originated that phrase, uh, the great John Rogers, uh, creator of Leverage and a couple of other things. And uh, so I want to make sure I give credit because I use that line a lot, but I want to make sure John, you know, because he's, he's a pretty great dude. But yeah, look, I put that up on the board when we were, I was working on a show called Blood and Treasure. Uh, and I put that up on top of the writer's room board because honestly, like, and look, I think, uh, I mean, look, even like great movies have, shit, have, have just, some of them have really shitty exposition, you know, like, like in Crimson Tide, you know, there's a scene where the where, where a sailor has to explain to the other sailor that the torpedoes have arming mechanisms and that's why they can only fire them a certain way. So he explains that and says, who'd you fuck to get on the ship? And you just go like, well, nice cover, but I mean, I see what you're doing there. <laughs> you <know>? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, whereas on something like Hunt for Red October, I think they did a better job of kind of putting that exact same plot point into kind of a more seamless way in the in, into the into the into the movie, you know, so. Um, I, th so anyway, yeah, but it, it, yeah, don't anyway. Uh, but yeah, if, if you find that your exposition and, and again, look, one of the things we're doing, doing this expo dump in dark crystal with puppets was how do we tell this incredibly complicated mythology without stopping the fun train? Cause sometimes you do have to get in there and give a speech about it, you know, but how do you keep the fun train going is a big one. Absolutely. You know? Can we also talk about action sequences, um, and explain the three basic requirements that you talk about? Look, uh, I mean, on, a, on their most basic level, an action, look, action sequences, and, and this is not something that's something, a, a phrase I create or anything, but action sequences are like love scenes and musical numbers. They're what, ha or montage. They're what happens when words will no longer suffice, the pitch of the emotions. People can no longer talk to each other, so they must punch each other, you know, like they've gone past dialogue into, the, or they have to sing or they have to fuck, you know. Um, but what I find with, with most of the like action sequences that are great, truly great, is that they have a beginning, a middle and an end. 
and that they're no different from any scene whatsoever, except they're the physicalization of an actual scene. Okay. So like most, and, and it's kind of how I do action scenes at this point, I figure out where does the character start? What are they trying to get to? Right. And what are the obstacles in the way of that? And look, I was doing a, for, for the Witcher, actually, I wrote this big action scene and I literally just, when I pitched it, I brought in a map, you know, and I said, here's, here's how this is going to go. We have to get from here to here to here. And this is how we do it, you know? Um, and actually, you know, I recently wrote an action sequence where it was actually about people being surrounded and herded. And it was actually a lot harder to write because I didn't have that progression of we're point A, point B to point C, you know, and I finally figured it out. But um, look, ultimately, a scene is somebody comes in, they want something, they tell the other person what they want or need, the other person tells them no and why, and either they figure out why not or they don't, why or why not, you know? So, and it's the same thing with, like the best, for me, the best action sequence ever is the truck chase from Indiana Jones. Because it is it is a number of three-act plays put within a sequence of three-act plays. Everything in that is a three-act play, even from like, you know, the, 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 the commander of the truck that Indiana Jones takes, right? You you meet him at the beginning a little bit, but you don't get a good sense of him. But then everybody gets knocked up off the truck and then he's going to go up the top of the truck. So he has a strong one, which is he needs to get up the truck. You know, if you look at just that entire just piece of that sequence with, from the moment the guy gets up and into the cab with Indiana Jones, throws him off the truck, Indiana Jones gets back in the truck. The guy, that, that sequence is a three-act play. No dialogue, but it's a scene between Indiana Jones and a guy who wants very badly to throw him off of a truck, you know? And the guy, you know, gets into the truck with Indiana Jones. That's the end of Act One. The guy throws Indiana Jones off the truck. That's the beginning of Act Two. Indiana Jones uh, manages a clever way of of saving himself by by using his bullwhip, which he can miraculously attach to the transaxle of the trucks. But let's not talk about that. He gets back in the he gets back in the truck. That's the middle of the, you know that clever way of surviving is the middle of the movie. He gets back in the truck. That is that is the uh, second half of Act Two, right? And then his final confrontation with the villain is the act three of it, you know, which ends the twist of it being that he throws the villain off the truck the exact same way the villain threw him off the truck. But the villain uh, can't quite work the uh, truck's grill the way Indiana Jones did and gets run over. But if you just look at that one small sequence in terms of classic screenwriting structure, it is a three act play. And and if you have an action scene, like there was a movie called um, The Raid Redemption, right? Um, or The Raid 2. I think it was The Raid 2. Raid Redemption is a little bit more linear because it's literally about getting from the ground floor of a tower to the top floor of a tower. But the second movie, they sort of opened up the world. And one of the things that I found very frustrating is that the action sequences in that movie were phenomenally choreographed. I mean, they're in, the things they do in that movie is amazing. But a lot of the se action sequences started at 11, stayed at 11, and ended at 11, you know? And the thing is, you got to start at zero and work your way up to 10, and then you can go to 11, you know? And I find that that's something that a lot of people forgetting action sequences, you know? And that buildup is drama. I think Fifth Element does a good job with this. Would you mm -hmm. agree or disagree in terms of... You know, I, I don't know that movie well enough, to ah, be honest with you. Okay. Uh, so, but I mean, I can't if you, speak to it, but the action scenes for uh, me are so embedded in story of the characters and their mm -hmm. movement and... Uh, anyway. mm -hmm. You know what movie I, I just movie. went to see that does this exceedingly well? It does it does the three act structure and character and character relationship is Guardians of the Galaxy, the last the next one. It's yeah, uh, you should all yeah. see it. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. Um it, 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 it is. It's 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 very satisfying, isn't it? Yeah. It is because, you know, some if action sequences are just for action sequences' sake, I literally start mm -hmm. to zone out. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um, because we've seen them so much already, you know. But when yeah. now it's 
kind of rolled back to, to deep character stuff that's happening. And I really, yeah. really care about mm -hmm. this moment and what they want and the acts to get mm -hmm. it and the relationship yeah. stuff that's happening, uh, that the, the action sequence is just is there to explore the character uh, and relationships yeah. uh, in a more dramatic way. Like you said, when there's no more words that they're going to go mm -hmm. to this level, which I love that idea about action sequence. Yeah, to me, the epitome of it is, is you know, in terms of action, I mean, there's, well, there's the truck chase and Raiders. There's weirdly another truck chase that went in Matrix, Revolu uh, Matrix Reloaded, which is about a half hour long. And it literally has subplots. It's got supporting characters. I mean, it's an in, it's insane how much of a movie within the movie that is and how much even, you know, um, and I think the the uh, the the last 45 minutes of Avengers Endgame is so masterfully put yeah. together because it's such a series and it, and it all again speaks to character. It's like, you know, this person gets beaten because this is the thing they don't, you know, da, da, da. And, and you know, and then Cap Captain America, he gets the crap beat out of him because he's only a person, but then he gets the hammer, you know, and it's like and it's like you, you're seeing so many combinations of of things that they've been building up and you're seeing it in action. It's it's really well done, you know. OK, but how do we write this? Um, do it. how do you write it how do i, I think put it on the to, page think, like action well, like... it's interesting think of it okay well there's two ways first there's two things i would say about that first of all think of it as a joke okay and I actually wrote an entire essay about the structure of a joke and how it relates to everything else and actually i teach the 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 indiana jones truck chase there and all the stuff about the truck chase but what is the beginning middle and end of, of your scene what is what is the emotional the same thing the way you would figure out a regular scene okay First of all, start with the most basic thing. If it's an A to B action scene, you know, John Wick has to get from, uh, you know, from the Eiffel Tower to Sacre Coeur. Now you know the destination. And if you look at that, that sequence is divided into three smaller sequences, right? There's there's, the, there's the first, I don't know where the first fight takes place, but then there's the second one in the Eiffel Tower, and then there's going up the stairs to Sacre Coeur, right? So even that. But in terms of character, it's sort of, for me, it's, it's about... In the Matrix, in, in, in the scene in the Matrix, it's about how are these characters going to do this impossible task without Neo, you know? And it's about their cleverness and all of that. And it's about, you know, uh, uh, and it's about Trinity, you know, it basically that, that scene puts everybody in the worst situation that a human being in the Matrix could get, which is human beings versus agents in a place where they can't get to a wired phone, you know? Um, and of course, the, and the scene ends with, with a sort of Neo finally arriving, you know, which is a little bit of a deus ex machina, but it's kind of earned because the characters have done everything they can to survive at that point, you know. Um, but you're seeing Morpheus actually go through this through this uh, very kind of intense character arc because he's literally in the scene up until the moment when he thinks he's going to die. Like you literally see him pull out every single stop until he's completely exhausted. And he er he's he's kind of he kind of earns the deus ex machina by literally almost completely destroying himself, you know. Um, right. but there are subplots in that scene because, you know, he has a relationship with Niobe, right. And you know, this from the movie. And then when she shows up, it feels completely. So I think what, what you start doing in plotting an action scene is you go like, okay, what's, what's the worst point of this for the main character? You know, how's he going to get out? But then what are the sub, the, the, the obstacles that I'm throwing in the way and how do they help build to that worst, worst moment? You know, and the more impossible uh, it is, the better, like we should literally yes. be like, I have no idea how mm -hmm. they will yeah. ever, or he or she will ever mm -hmm. ever because a lot of times mm -hmm. emerging writers keep that impossibility a little too close so it's a little too possible yeah. the more impossible the goal the more i'm mm -hmm. leaning in with expectation right well i think when you look at and when you look at the truck chase and raiders specifically you know he says truck what truck i'm going after that truck and then he gets on a horse and you fucking love him right then for the first you know 
act of the sequence, he kicks the crap out of a bunch of shemps, you know? So that's very much Indiana Jones ascendant, you know? It's, it's I'm at the beginning of the scene, I'm getting everything I want, you know, and it's no different from a dialogue scene where a character is saying, you know, the, you know the, but then what does the scene do? It throws a character that is Indiana Jones's equal into the scene. And how do you know that? There's no dialogue. You don't you don't get, see, hear the guy say his resume. I'll tell you how you how you how you realize it. There's a scene where the German commander is going across the top of the of the truck. He gets his own musical motif. And that and and then you realize, oh shit. I mean, maybe you're not thinking of it, but you realize the 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 big obstacle here is Indiana Jones has an equal in this commander, you know. And that's why the commander beats him a certain way. And then Indiana Jones has to beat him the same way in order for it to work. You know, that's why it's so satisfying when Indiana Jones is bashing the guy set against the dashboard and the back wall of the truck, because you know that this guy and Indiana Jones are the same, uh, at least in terms of their ability, physical ability. So Indiana Jones triumphing over him. It's not odds that are so high that he's never going to that he's never going to do it. It's like the worst thing Indiana Jones can meet is somebody who's as good as him. Because right. that's what we've been loving about Indiana Jones is how competent he is at doing all of this stuff, you know, and that's why that becomes that 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 sort of lowest point and then the highest point of the sequence, you know. Um, Thank you. That helps. Um, is there a final piece of advice you'd like to give our audience uh, today? Uh, I wrote another essay called "It Really Is All a Joke," and it's actually a much shorter essay, um, and that's also on my website. And it's about talking about this three act thing, and. In terms of, it's something that I have to remind myself of. It's something that we all, you know, you're saying like, I'm talking about basics and yeah, I'm talking about basics, but, you know, experience is once you get to know all the basics is re is either remembering or going back and relearning the first ones you learned because those are the easiest things to forget, you know? So I think we actually owe it to each other as writers to keep kind of reminding each other of that. And so kind of what happens in a writer's room a lot. Um, but I think that everybody has a method of screenwriting. Uh, most of them are equally valid. Uh, and equally useful. But I think when you break it down to its most core thing, it's like, what is the three act play, even in a line, you know, and I use the line, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn, you know, starts with a declaration of, of kinship and honesty, right? You know, then escalates to a declaration of love and then twists into one of disdain, you know, like that's a three act play right there, you know? Um, so even at the level of a line, a line, a line can, and sometimes most of the time has to be, a three-act play because it's literally a sentence is a subject, an object, and a predicate, you know? Once you start realizing that everything needs to have that build, it actually clarifies a lot of, you start questioning, the, the question then becomes, why am I doing this in a script? How is it part of that three-part structure? And and I think that can be very helpful to keep in mind. And it's something that you should learn to forget. It's, you should learn it so you can forget it. Yeah, I think that's super becomes, important what you say. Like, you've got to learn it, be able to do it, so that you can forget it and just let it be instinct and music in you. Yeah. So exactly. to that point, um, how did you discover these truths for yourself? Was it intellectually sort of breaking down other films and then applying it to your creative work? Was it discovering it in your creative work? Like what, or is it all just along the same path for you? I think for me, honestly, like it starts with, I have to read a lot of other people's scripts uh, because if I'm staffing a show or like, you know, like we did a thing with the agency campaign where we like got a bunch of showrunners together to read other people's scripts and stuff like that. And it begins with what's the note that I'm giving most? You know, what are the things that I see collectively that and and would, would I give myself that note and do the scripts that, that I have that that I think are good have those same issues? And then I look at my own work and all of that, you know, and I try to figure out sort of like like 
I'm I'm trying I'm, I'm working with one of my my English somebody who taught me at Carnegie Mellon when I was there who's now the head of the creative writing department, and the the question I you know because I, I a lot of these essays I'm writing for for them, um and and the question I ask her is what do what do your students need most to be taught, <laughs> you know. So a lot of the stuff comes from just from taking an average of what my problems are in my own writing and then that I see commonalities in other people's writing. That makes sense. Thank you. Because look, ultimately, ultimately, none of this is out of altruism or goodness of my heart. It's really mercenary. <laughs> I just I just hope that if you come to work in my staff, you know all this shit, so I don't have to teach it to you. you know? <laughs> totally. I and better it. stories, right? I want to turn on the TV and like have better stories all the time, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, exactly. It's a great exactly. reminder that, that we should be reading. Emerging writers sometimes forget that like watching movies is valuable, but reading- pro writers forget to to read because yeah. we get so busy. We like, oh, I'll put that off. Mm-hmm. So like, I'm guilty of this. You it's should all so read scripts. And then I'm like, when was the last time I sat down with a pile of features that I admire to see how they're actually written? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's a good reminder for everybody, including me. And look, you can read some of the biggest professionals of script and they're just not as readable as you think they should be. You know, and I think that it becomes also about, look, but your your priority as a writer might not be, I want to write a script that is so readable that, you know, I mean, it's like you may have other priorities as a writer and it's like, I don't rule those out. But to me, the thing, the, the thing I learned most from like, you know, a lifetime of reading other people's scripts is I want you to make it easy for me. You know, I'm already reading a technical document that's written in kind of a, a, a different, if not language idiom than most fiction. The other, the other question is, how can I make the read easy? You know, watching a movie is easy. You sit down, you open your eyes. So now when you're reading, you've got this added level of difficulty, which is you have to keep a person engaged in the act of reading, which is an active act. And that's the biggest trick of the screenwriter is how do I make a person feel my movie when I have to make them work to see the movie? You know? I have a question. We don't have to put this in the show for going long, but um, um, I, I just um was helping a friend recently with her script giving her notes like we do we give each other notes and I suddenly realized this is maybe so hard to read because I don't know who Mm. it's emotional point of view I'm in I Mm. don't know who I'm sitting in in the scene and 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 it's and unfortunately it's usually not her it's I'm usually watching her from somebody Mm -hmm. else's point of view and in a weird way it actually makes it hard to read it actually makes me hard Mm. because I'm not in I'm not inside of anybody do you ever yeah. find that is, is a reason because we're not emotionally sure mm-hmm. what we're supposed to be feeling or focusing on? Mm-hmm. I mean, look, one of the, have, you, have you ever gone to one of those 4DX movies? Like where they, you're sitting in a seat and the seat shakes you. And no, but I've, I've written them. And... I've written several of okay. them now. So I, I know, <laughs> but I've never seen one that I've written, but I've written them. Yeah. I went to a, a showing of the matrix in 4DX. I had to walk out 20 minutes because I got sick. But the thing I realized, and it actually does translate into writing, is the reason 4DX doesn't work for me is that most action sequences are not written from the point of view of a character. They are many different moving parts that you watch coming together at different times. So if I'm watching The Matrix, you know, and I'm with Trinity, but I'm still, every once in a while, they cut back to the agents, but the thing is still shaking me. And I'm like, wait, I'm not the agent, I'm Trinity. Why are you shaking me? I'm her, but I'm still feeling the same thing, right? But I'm watching another character. Why is this happening? You know, so in a way, I think I think Meg, what you're saying is so spot on. It's like you need to figure out who the main character is, not just of your script, but of your scene, you know, and and make sure that you're favoring that character and that you're putting us in, if not the point of view or the emotional point of view of that character, at least, you know, that that your descriptions, what you put in front of the camera, which is putting in front of the the reader's eye is germane to that person's journey, you know? 
And yes. that's what I'm doing in these things that I'm writing. It's like mm. all through the main character. What is she feeling? What is she experiencing? What's her point of view? It's yeah. an interesting exercise if you want to just take like, I'm going to write a 10 minute short and pretend mm. that I'm experiencing physically everything the character mm. is experiencing, what that feels like and how that pushes the story yeah. forward or not. Yeah. I just came up with yeah. a new exercise for one of my workshops. Thank there you, you so go. much. There you go. <laughs> Javi, cool. thanks so much for being here today. It was really, as always, awesome. And uh, just uh, so you appreciate guys, your, it. Your esteem means the world to me. I really appreciate it. And I'm so flattered and grateful. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks so much to Javi for joining us today. He has tons of incredible free resources over on his website. Go check it out. The Grigio Marks Watch Experimental Design Bureau. And you can also find some great resources over on our Screenwriting Life Facebook group where lots of people are connecting and tons of writing groups are forming, which is very inspiring. And to connect with Lori and I directly, please consider joining our Patreon, which will link in the episode notes as well. And remember, you are not alone and keep writing.